Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Keep Marching to the End. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 7th, 2010. Next year, 2011, will mark the 75th anniversary of George Bernanos's novel, The Diary of a Country Priest, first published way back in 1936. If you've ever struggled with the call of God to follow Jesus the Lord, I highly recommend this little book. Bernanos tells the story of a young and earnest parish priest in rural France who feels like a total failure. And from a human perspective, he's not mistaken. The entire novel is a diary in which the, re the priest records what he calls, quote, the simple, trivial secrets of a very ordinary kind of life, end quote. He describes with brutal honesty his doubts, loneliness, social isolation, and sense of futility. He clashes with his clergy colleagues. He broods over the history of his own family dysfunction. He knows that he's physically clumsy and socially awkward. He's even repulsed by his own body due to chronic stomach pains caused by an impoverished diet that's aggravated by an inadequate salary. Nor does the priest enjoy much satisfaction in his ministry. When he shares the gospel, he says that he feels like he's merely play-acting and parroting cliches. He feels powerless in the face of suffering, and he ponders the absurdity of prayer. He describes his parishioners as bored, boring, and petty. They gossip about him as a secret drinker and a womanizer. Both of, both of these accusations being ludicrous. And yet, the priest loves his flock. He visits every home every year, and he prays for them. The cumulative effect of this candor and introspection is a sense of disillusionment. The priest is an astute observer of the weakness, frailty, and fallenness of human nature especially his own, and as a consequence, he wrestles with his sense of vocation and call. He compares his restlessness to a hornet in a bottle. Reflect, reflecting upon what he calls his wretched weaknesses, he struggles with an ominous sense of failure that, as he puts it, my best is nothing. And so he questions his call. Am I where our Lord would have me? Twenty times a day I ask this question. The priest might have drawn some encouragement from this week's stories about Isaiah, Paul, and Peter. In all three of them, we observe a singular theme. It's a theme that St. Augustine once confessed with equal parts passion and eloquence. Augustine said, Lord, what I am for you terrifies me. What I am with you consoles me. 
For you, I am a priest. With you, I am a Christian. When the prophet Isaiah had a vision of Yahweh in the Jerusalem temple, dread and terror overwhelmed him. Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah was one of the most gifted poets in ancient history. Even today, people who are unfamiliar with the Bible recognize his verse in music like Handel's Messiah. But long before Kierkegaard's famous three stages, the artistic, the ethical, and the religious, Isaiah identified the profound difference between a mere artistic genius who amazes us with cleverness and a genuine apostle who speaks an authentic word from God. The billowing smoke, thundering voices, and violent earthquake that he envisioned caused Isaiah to repudiate his literary competence. His vision reads like a science fiction horror story when an angel takes a smoldering coal from the altar with a pair of tongs and sears his lips, the very source of his poetic eloquence. When the Apostle Paul pondered how violently he had tried to exterminate the early Jesus movement, painful memories evoke feelings of deep regret. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, I'm the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, for I persecuted the church of God. Throughout the New Testament, in seven autobiographical flashbacks on his pre-conversion life, Paul describes how he imprisoned many disciples, dragged them to Jerusalem for punishment, expended every effort to force them to blaspheme, favored the death penalty for them, and opposed the name of Jesus with all his might. What Paul once boasted of as the best religious orthodoxy, he later repudiated as the worst form of self-righteous zealotry. Given his pathologically violent predisposition, even late in his life, Paul still lamented, I am the worst of sinners. In Paul's mind, what he called the unlimited patience of God was the only thing that permitted him to move beyond the inertia and regret caused by his painful memories. When the fisherman Peter worked hard all night and caught nothing at all, but then obeyed Jesus' command to sink his nets into deeper waters, he hauled in a catch of fish that ripped his nets and nearly sunk his boat. When he realized what had happened, and when he grasped the inverse relationship between the power of God and his paltry faith, Peter recoiled before Jesus in fear. Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In fact, Peter had other occasions to confess his faults, failures, and frailty. When he rebuked Jesus for predicting his suffering and death, Jesus called Peter Satan. <clears throat> After denying that he would deny Jesus 
and then doing so three times, Peter wept bitterly. And then, decades later, Paul publicly rebuked Peter for his blatant hypocrisy in refusing to eat with ritually impure Gentiles. The upshot of these three stories is that human sin, failure, and inadequacy were not obstacles to God's call. God's message never requires a perfect messenger. Because of this, embracing rather than denying our fallenness is a path of liberation and not humiliation. It's an act of candid self-awareness and not misanthropic self-hatred. When we embrace the disparity between the divine call and human inadequacies, we move from illusion to reality, from self-justification to divine acceptance. And if we're lucky, we enjoy the paradox of that narrow boundary between more self-awareness and less self-consciousness. Despite the abyss between the divine transcendence and human finitude, we can still offer ourselves to God like Isaiah. Here am I, send me. Without hedging our bets or adding contingency clauses, we can imitate Peter, James, John, and their companions who, we read, pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed Jesus. And with Paul, we can rejoice that, quote, by the grace of God, I am what I am, end quote. To Isaiah's dread, Paul's deep regrets and painful memories, Peter's fears, into our own deeply personal insecurities today, God whispers to us what Jesus said to Peter. Don't be afraid, Luke 5.10. And with the psalmist for this week, we can confess, though I walk in the midst of trouble, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Psalm 138, 7 and 8. By the end of Bernanos' novel, the young priest has a keen sense of history and of his own obscure role to play. His elders advise him to persevere amidst his questions. And now I quote, Keep saying your lessons. Go on with your work. Keep at the little daily things that need doing till the rest comes. Concentrate. Think of a lad at his homework, trying so hard and his tongue sticking out. That's how our Lord would have us be when he gives us up to our own strength. Little things, they don't look like much, yet they bring peace. Like wild flowers which seem to have no scent until you get a field full of them. Keep marching to the end, they advise the young priests, and try to end up quietly at the roadside without shedding your equipment. And when the priest finally dies of stomach cancer at a young age, we realize that Bernanos has painted a portrait 
of a genuine saint. On his deathbed at the end of the book, the priest confesses, does it matter? Grace is everywhere. And now for further reflections. With whose experience do you most identify? Isaiah, Peter, or Paul? Consider the observation of Soren Kierkegaard. Whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. And see the book by Donald McCullough, The Consolations of Imperfection, Learning to Live with Life's Limitations. For books this week, I review Eamon Duffy, Marking the Hours, English People and Their Prayers, 1240 to 1570, New Haven, Yale, 2006, and the book is 202 pages. This book is too expensive to buy, but it's very much worth the effort to track down at your public or local seminary library. Eamon Duffy is a self-described cradle Catholic, professor of the history of Christianity at the University of Cambridge, and former president of Maudlin College. In this handsome volume of text and images, 114 photographs of manuscripts, he explores the distinctly Catholic personal prayer books called Book of Hours. These were a glamorous centerpiece of medieval piety. Books of Hours were used by lay people, not clergy. Their content varied, but typically included the offices of, or hours of daily prayers, psalms, hymns, devotions, and, as they were handed down from generation to generation, handwritten marginalia. It is to these marginal scribbles that Duffy pays special attention, and thus the delightful double entendre of the title, Marking the Hours. Most study of the 800 surviving manuscripts, and even more printed copies, consider the Book of Hours as artistic artifacts, which they certainly are given their elaborate and brightly colored illustrations. But Duffy's interests are distinctly historical, theological, liturgical, and personal. Who owned these books, and how did they use them? What do we learn about the history of prayer and the relationship of private piety to the church institution? Women, it turned out, were significant owners and users, as were the aristocracy in general, who had enough money to buy them and could read the Latin. But cheaper versions emerged in vernacular English, especially with the advent of print, and so books of hours flourished in a down-market audience of modest means. At the end of the 15th century, in fact, writes Duffy, books of hours became, in terms of numbers of editions, quite simply and without any rival, the chief product of the new technology of printing. Printing tended to standardize content, 
and offer a broader range of quality and price. Some scholars have argued that books of hours hastened a regrettable privatization of piety and encouraged an egocentric spirituality of me prayers that was proto-Protestant. Duffy rejects this idea of a new individualism or interiority. Yes, it's true, these books were used by individuals, but they were people deeply embedded in their communities of family, guild, and church. By 1534, in England's break with Rome, books of hours became illegal in a battleground and target of Protestant reformers who detested their popery, indulgences, mariology, and prayers for the dead. For detractors, a book of hours symbolized papist error at its worst. For diehard Catholics, on the other hand, they became a badge of non-compliance with the Reformation. Thanks to Duffy's meticulous research, they speak to us even today of the soul's search for God. The title of the book, Marking the Hours, English People and Their Prayers, 1240 to 1570. The author is Eamon Duffy. For film this week, I review Broken Embraces, newly released 2009. The film is from Spain by the Spanish director Pedro Almodovar. Pedro Almodovar asks a lot from his audience. This is a film about a blind film director who's making a film that itself is being filmed. Got that? Director and writer Matteo Blanco is now blind, but in a series of flashbacks, we learn how 14 years earlier, he brought to stardom and fell in love with a gorgeous woman named Lena, played by Penelope Cruz. This happened while making his film of the title Girls in Suitcases. The only problem in addition to his existing marriage, is that the elderly mega-millionaire Ernesto Martel paid for the film because he was pathologically obsessed with Lena after having taken her as a live-in mistress. When Martel discovers Lena's involvement with Mateo, he has his gay son voyeuristically film the making of girls in suitcases and even hires a lip-reading stenographer to record their every conversation. There are other complex layers to this film that warrant multiple viewings, but tragedy is the destiny for everyone. Across the two hours, we learn why Matteo assumed the alias Harry Kane, how he became blind, and the ultimate satisfaction he gained at the end. Broken Embraces, in Spanish, with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Marianne Bernard. It's appropriate 
for the dead of winter in the month of February. The title of Marianne Bernard's poem is called Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head. Her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep in fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, that things don't follow fast or fair. That life goes on and times do change and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow, the smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine that children smile, and from the dark, cold grime a flower comes. It groans, yet sings, and through its pain, its peace begins. Marianne Bernard. The title of the poem, Resurrection. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, February the 7th, 2010, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.